0: We'll turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3 will be in verses 8 through 16. 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 16. Now, we know that God sent His Son, Jesus, and Jesus came as a man, and He lived the perfect life that we can't live. And when Jesus finished his work here, he ascended to heaven. But what he did is he left back disciples to carry on the work. And those disciples, they they began to preach. And what happened is as people started to come and hear the message of, of the gospel, and next thing you know, more and more got saved, and God established what we call the church. Now, the way that God brings forward the gospel in the world is plan A. He only has plan A. He's only had plan A. There is no plan B. It's called the church. And if you're a Christian this morning, if you've received Christ, if you're born again, you are added to the corporate church. You're part of God's body. And you're a living testimony of the working of Christ in your life. And what God did when he established the church, he had to establish some kind of a leadership plan. So he laid on the hearts of certain men to become shepherds called overseers, called pastors. And they were to teach the church the things of God's word. We talked about that last time I spoke, the qualifications of an overseer or a shepherd or a pastor, whatever you want to call it. Well, today, Paul, the apostle, is going to talk about the qualifications of a deacon. Because the works or ministry are many. And you need many hands doing the works of ministry. So in the section this morning, Paul is going to bring forward, what is it to be a deacon in the church? If you remember, Paul, with with Timothy, almost 16 years or more on the mission field. And as he went along, they planted churches. And one of those churches was a church in Ephesus. Paul, on his second missionary journey, most people feel that it was probably Priscilla and Aquila that started that church. That he left them there. And then he came back on his third missionary journey and he had Timothy with him. He spent about three years in Ephesus ministering to the people. Then Paul takes off to Macedonia. He leaves Timothy there as the pastor. There were some problems in the church, if you remember. There were some false teachers They came in They were teaching false doctrine. And so what Paul does, he writes this letter to Timothy. And what he wants to do is explain, how do you lead a church? How do you, what, how do, you do this thing called church? And we've seen already he told him what it meant to have the call on his life as a pastor. And then he spoke about the role of women. He talked about already we've seen what it is in terms of the qualifications for a pastor. And now he deals with deacons. So let's read the text. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 16 says, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sore gain. But holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience... These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and of their households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and in great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory." So what are the qualifications of a deacon? The first thing we see is a deacon must be a person of character, tested, and found blameless. If you're going to serve as a deacon in this church, or really any church, you should be a person of character. And that character has to be recognized, and then it's tested, and you should be found blameless of any sin. So Paul begins here in this section, it says deacons likewise. This is a transition. Now remember last time we were talking about overseers, pastors, and Paul begins to transition from those type of leaders to a different type of leader. He uses two different names for leaders in this section. One are overseers, which is basically a pastor, the other one are deacons here. And we saw that pastors are called men that are called by God to teach the Word of God, to pray, to, to shepherd the church, he uses here the English word deacon is a transliteration of the Greek word dekanos and it means a servant or a waiter. It means to serve the church. We see when this took place in Acts chapter 6. If you want to turn there with me, we'll kind of start with that and we'll kind of keep moving through. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. So in the book of Acts, it, it speaks about all of a sudden you have this unique thing in history a new covenant, and it's called the church. And if you remember, when Peter began to preach, when he preached in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people were added in one day. Well, what with that, a lot of people comes what? Problems. <laughs> and so Acts chapter 6, you see there's so many people, so much works of ministry to do, they make a decision to put people in office called a deacon. Let's read it together. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It says now at the, this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily service of food. So the 12th summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, "It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who may be put in charge of this task. but we will devote ourselves to prayer." Into the ministry of the word, and so you have this picture here where you had Hellenistic Jews; those are Jews from outside of Jerusalem. They came in, they got saved. Now they're part of the church. Well, it seems that some were giving preference to the locals, to the to the Jewish people that lived there, and not to the Hellenistic Jews. And so, what the what the apostle says, hey, say, okay, let's appoint men. Seven of them. If you remember Timothy? I mean, um, Stephen was one of those. They were men full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. This is what a deacon is. They're to do the works of the ministry alongside the pastor, to come alongside and to help. And the first ones were appointed by the apostles. Remember, deacon literally means servant. One who serves the Lord, serves the church. And by the way, Paul mentions in Philippians, both overseer and deacon, and, and the way he presents it in Philippians is they're as, as if they're offices within the church. So, first, Paul's going to focus here on the characteristic traits of those who are to serve as a deacon. Now, let me start just by saying it's important that you understand that, that every Christian is called to serve. All of us are called to serve the Lord. Um, and if you're not serving, you have to ask the Lord why. That's incumbent upon you. Have the cares of this world so overtaken you, that you don't feel you have time to give God? Before God, you need to say, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? How can I serve you with the gifts you've given me? That could be here, it could be in some other ministry, but you should be serving the Lord in some function. But this isn't a, an office of leadership that we're talking about here, this office of the deacon. And so Paul wants to begin to focus in on their character traits In verse 8, he's going to point out four areas of self-control that a deacon must possess. First one, he says, they must be men of dignity. Now, the NIV translated men worthy of respect. Um, It's interesting to note that in the original Greek, when I looked at it, the word men is not there. The reason I say that, there are some that would say that the the role of a deacon can be for either men or or women, and and I would agree with him. I think it is, and I'll I'll get into that in a little bit. But he starts out, men of dignity here. Um, The idea of dignity means serious or stately. The idea is this, you're serious about serving the Lord. You understand that ministry is a serious work. You understand that this is no game. You're not flipping about it. It's important to you to be faithful. And the way that God has made you and designed you, you want to press in and you want to serve the Lord and, and be faithful to that call And he doesn't stop there. Then he says, they also must not be double-tongued. So he gives one positive, if you will, men of dignity. And now he's going to show three negatives. And the first one is not double-tongued. That's from the Greek word, delagos. And it has this idea here. It's a prohibition against saying one thing to one person and then saying another thing to another person. It's like you're speaking out of two sides of your mouth. It has this idea that you tell someone one thing for, that could benefit you, and then you tell another person another thing that can benefit you, you basically lie. You don't tell the whole truth, you're, you're a hypocrite. You want to always be comfortable, you don't want to just speak the truth in love, you want to kind of play all sides. That's the idea of being double-tongued. And then he says, not addicted to much wine, it's the Greek word prosecco. And it means to occupy yourself with wine, to occupy yourself with alcohol, to be overwhelmed with it, to, that this is your main thing. It has a hold on you. You're addicted. It, it has control in your life. And the, and the same thing with the overseer. Paul had said that an overseer should not give himself too much wine. The same thing here with the deacon Now, remember, in that culture, wine was a part of the culture, but primarily when they drank wine, it was diluted with water. It was like eight parts water, two parts wine. There was virtually no alcohol in that thing. And they used it really as more of a purifying agent within water because the water wasn't always good in that culture. But to drink straight wine, it can impact the way you think, the way you act. And so he's saying, you need to be a person of self-control. Don't be given over to much wine. And then he moves on to money. He says, we're fond of sordid gain. It's interesting that, that word sordid gain, it, it's, it's the word that we would say greedy. Don't be greedy. Is that your focus? Is that the thing in your life that has a hold on you? You're always thinking about it, wanting it, collecting it, like to know how much you have. You're, you're into money. Money drives you. Literally, he told pastors not to love money, that kind of idea. And we, we know that money itself can be used for good, can be used for a- evil, but it's the love of money that's the root of all evil is the idea, again, here that he's getting at. And, and particularly, I think, for, for, for the deacon, oftentimes in the service of the Lord, deacons would be used by the church to distribute the goods and the money to the, to the widows and the orphans and to help those in need. And, and I think what Paul's concerned about is that if they're given over to money and they're part of the church using money, then they might be tempted. And they might start to pilfer it, you know what I mean? Kind of take it for themselves. And that temptation could cause them to sin. Now, isn't that Judas? Remember Judas? That was his problem. He was given over to money. Let me read for you John chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. Remember when Mary came and she anointed Jesus' feet with the perfume? This is that situation here in John 12, 4 through 6 says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief as he had hold of the money box and he used to pilfer it and and get out of it what was put into it. So Paul's saying here, be careful. Do you have a heart that's given over to money? Don't don't be fond of sordid gain. So these four character traits are what you look for in a deacon. They don't love money. They don't drink much wine. He doesn't speak dishonestly, but he's serious about serving the Lord. And so Paul up front deals with their character, and now he's going to start speaking about their spiritual life, the health of them spiritually. Look at verse 9. He says, But holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. He says, holding to the mystery of faith, that word mystery is mysterion. And it always speaks about, when you hear that mystery of the faith, he's talking about what was mysterious in the Old Testament, now is made clear in the New Testament. And what he's saying is the deacon is somebody that's given over to New Testament teaching, given over to New Testament doctrine, theology. That the deacon, the person who wants to serve in that particular office, they know their Bible well, and they live by it, and, and they, they understand the Word of God, and when, when you read Paul, particularly in First in and 2 Timothy, he makes a really big deal about sound doctrine. That's this idea. He's saying, if, if you're a deacon, and think about this church at that time, there were, there were false prophets in the church, and they were teaching false doctrine. And so again, he's saying, you need to know the mystery. What that means is you need to know the mystery, which is the gospel message, what's been made clear in the New Testament message. Everything that the apostles taught, you need to know that. You need to know sound doctrine. Matter of fact, he says this in First Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. He says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrine any, any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's word, which is of faith. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 3, for the time will come will they will not endure sound doctrine. But they want to have their ears tickled, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. He's saying, you being a deacon, you know sound doctrine, and you teach sound doctrine. You be firm in that. But not just that, he says, but with, look, a clear conscience. So you don't just teach it, you live it. That's the idea. You know the Word of God, you obey the Word of God. That doctrine that you're teaching others, it's impacting your own heart. That theology that you're explaining to people, you know it so well and you're trying to live it also. There's no perfection here. I'm not talking perfection, but I'm talking a seriousness about the word of God. And the person that you would look for and that that would serve as a deacon is somebody that loves the Lord, serves the Lord, trusts God's word, and lives out God's word. They have a clear conscience. That means that there's, there's nothing that's held against them. Um, and the idea that the more theology you know, the more doctrine you know, the clearer your conscience can be because you understand the word of God and you can actually live it out and begin to honor God with your life. There's no doubts because you're just living it out. There's no guilt on you because you've already confessed your sin. And, and, and yes, First John 1, 9, we, we go to him and he's faithful and just to forgive us. We keep what I call a short account with God because it's led and directed by the word of God. So the person that Paul would say would be a deacon... They're men of dignity. That means worthy of respect. They're not double-tongued. They're not speaking out of both sides of their mouth. They're not addicted to much wine. They're not in love with money. Um, They hold fast to God's word with a clear conscience. So when you see a person like this, you say, okay, that person seems to have all those qualities. But then he says here, he says, but they must first be tested. Look at verse 10. It says, these men must also first be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. So he's saying, hey, when you see someone with these character traits, when you see someone that, that has a sensitive conscience to the Word of God, when you see someone who's being faithful in these ways, you say, watch them, test them, give them a period of time. Let's see how they live their life. There's a testing period. It's interesting, this is in the present passive tense. Now what that means is that there's a time period that you'd want to watch somebody and say, you know, these guys are faithful. And then you put them in office as a deacon and they're serving officially in the church. But the present passive means that it continues on. You don't stop testing them. That they're continued to live this way. You don't just make them a deacon and say, okay, later, I hope you, you act the right way. No, it's, you watch them still. There's, a, there's an ongoing testing before the Lord. And then he says, so that they are beyond reproach. Yeah, I like the way the NIV puts this. It says, they, they must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. That's the idea. There's nothing against them. That word reproach is, is, would mean blameless. Um, it, ha- it has a lot to do with moral purity, this idea that there's nothing that somebody can, somebody can bring against them in, in a moral way, but it also has to do in integrity issues and truthfulness these kind of things, they're, they're blameless. There's nobody that can bring a reproach on them, on their family, or on the church because of their actions. We saw the same thing in First Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, when he's speaking about the overseer. He said an overseer then must be above reproach. You're saying, okay, so the overseer's above reproach and a deacon's above reproach, so what's the difference? All the character qualities should be the same for the overseer and the deacon. The only difference is, the role of teaching and the gift of teaching, for that man that's called out by God to have that role as a shepherd and overseer of the church. But all the character issues, they should be the same. So just like the overseer, a deacon must be godly. They must have personal character. They must have a strong spiritual life. They must be morally pure. They should be a person of whose high upstanding moral character. And it's tested and you can see it and the church would see it. You know, as an undergraduate theologian and author, D.A. Carson, he co-led an evangelistic Bible study. And he confessed when he was in college, when he kind of felt out of his depths, when when there might be a skeptic or a doubter, he would often take them to his friend, Dave, who he said was a bold witness. On one such occasion, a young man, D.A. Carson, brought him to Dave, and Dave said this. No, the young man said this to Dave. He says, I come from a family family that doesn't believe in the literal resurrection and all that stuff about Jesus. That's a bit much for us. But we're a fine family. We're we're good. We're a church-going family. We love each other and we care for each other. And we do good in the community. So what's the difference between us and you? And Dave looked at the young man and said, watch me. He says, move in with me. I got an extra bed. He says, you can just spend the time. He said, watch the character and the quality of my life. He says, just follow me around. See how I behave, what's important to me, what I do with my time, the way that I talk. You watch me. And at the end of three months, you tell me if there's a difference. The young man didn't take Dave up on the offer of moving in, but he did take him up on the offer to watch him. And a few months later, that young man came to Christ and is now a medical missionary on the mission field. So Carson concluded his thoughts with this and Dave's challenge. He said, a Christian is saying, in effect, I'm a poor beggar telling another poor beggar where there's bread. And I've drank deeply from the wellsprings of grace. God knows I need more of it. And if you watch me, you'll see some glimmerings of a Savior. And ultimately, you'll want to fasten yourself onto him. A deacon is the same thing. A deacon should be, should be able to say, watch me. See if my life adds up to what a Christian should be. Yeah, well, Pastor Rob, you know, when you when you said that, you know, I was kind of listening to those character traits. And I, I don't know if I if I really fit all those. Just ask yourself this question: can somebody move into your house this week? And for the next three months, they just kind of see your life. They see how you live it, how you are with your family, what you watch on TV, how you spend your mornings, your evenings, the way you treat your neighbors. Do you have those kind of qualities? And if you don't, say, Lord, help me. Because everyone in this room could serve as a deacon. But you need those kind of character traits that God calls us for. So a deacon must be a person of character, tested and found blameless. There's a second thing. A deacon must not slander others but be faithful in all things. Now, a woman can function in the role of a deacon as a faithful servant to the Lord. Look at verse 11. It says, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now, there is a big debate in this particular section of Scripture whether or not a woman can function in the official office of a deacon. And i got to be straight with you. I read a ton on this, and it was literally split down the middle. Some thinking women can, and others thinking women can't. And the reason that is, is, is that most scholars, I mean not most, but some scholars feel that they're talking about the wives of the deacons here. But there's a, there's a problem with that because when you look at the original Greek, there, there's not really a, a word in the Greek for the wives of the deacons. The, the, the word he uses here is guneikos, and it just means woman. And he also here, he doesn't say their woman, relating them to the, de, the men deacons he was just talking about. He just says likewise women. So we have to ask the question here this morning is, what women is he talking about? And I think, as I looked through it, I I came up with five reasons why I think women can officially serve as deacons, and I'll share my ideas with you. I think the simple answer first is the best translation here is simply women, uh, because the translation of the word itself is in the Greek. And so first, if it's wives that he meant here, there should have been a positive pronoun that said they're women, there's not. Or... There could have been, um, let's see here, it could have been an article that would be used in the possessive case, and there's not. It simply just says likewise women. So I think in that sense, the best way to say it is read it in plain text. It just means women. Second, why would there be qualifications for the wives of deacons and no qualifications for the wives of elders, which I think would have a more prominent place in the church and would be more visible, but Paul says nothing about the wives of the elders, why does he all of a sudden shift and say something about the deacons he doesn't? I think he's just talking about women who serve as deacons. Third, the word likewise is showing a change in thought. And I think that change in thought, I'm talking about men deacons, and now I'm talking about women deacons. Fourth, in Romans 16.1, it seems to indicate that Phoebe held the role of a deacon in the church. Romans 16.1 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deaconess or servant of the church, which is in Cheterea. Now, Paul never uses the word deaconess. The reason is the word deaconess wasn't in Koine Greek at that time. And whenever they spoke, both men and women, it was always referred to in the masculine a deaconess. And so later on, the word deaconessa came into to be, but this is after this first century Greek here. And fifth, there's clear evidence that the early church had women serving as deacons, at least by A.D. 120. There's a letter written by Pliny to the Emperor Trajan that indicates he tortured two Christian women, and he called them ministrae, which is the Latin for deaconess, and then also Clement and Origen in the second century, both related to, to women serving as deacons in the church. And so with all those things, I think women can serve in the official role as a deacon, And so what Paul says, what he says about men, he begins to say about women. And he says, the first thing is that women should be dignified. Now, this is the same word that he used in verse 8, this idea about being serious about the ministry, serious about serving the Lord, serious about how your life looks to others and giving yourself over in service. And then he says, and not malicious gossips. That's diabolos, and that means accuser or slanderer. Um, it often is used to describe Satan. The idea here is is you need to control your tongue. What you say matters. It's the idea of gossip, speaking behind someone's back, accusing them of something, but having no basis for that accusation. It's gossip. This is what Proverbs eleven thirteen 13 says, he who goes about as a gossip reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy, he conceals a matter. So somebody who would be considered a, A deacon in the church is somebody that wouldn't do that, wouldn't speak behind someone's back. Also temperate, Paul again talks about wine here. He's talking about drinking. Basically a teetotaler is the idea. They don't drink much wine. Again, not giving over to drink. They're in self-control. They understand that if they go there, they're disqualified. And then faithful in all things. This means that there are women who are trustworthy in all that they did. And, you know, when I think of our church, and although we we don't use the words so much here, overseer and deacon, those official titles, I see in this church that there are, are, are women very faithful that actually would fulfill this role as a deacon. We have women that give themselves over to help and serve the body. We have women here that care for the poor, they minister to the sick, they provide meals for families. They assist people in need. They counsel other women. We have women that, that do regular hospital visits. We have women that go to people's homes and help out. We have women discipling other women, women teaching other women. We have women who teach the children. And I would say, just like this, that they're faithful in all things, and we're blessed as a church. In his book, The Pastor, Eugene Peterson, he described um, his wife, what her understanding is of a woman in leadership. Listen to what, her her name is Jan. This is what Jan said. She said, being a woman leader is a way of life. It means participation in the intricate web of hospitality, living at the intersection of human need and God's grace, inhabiting a community where men and women who don't fit are welcomed, where neglected children are noticed, where stories of Jesus are told, and people who have no stories find that they do have stories, stories that are part of Jesus' story. Being a woman leader places me strategically yet unobtrusively at a heavily trafficked intersection between heaven and earth. That is so true. And you might be saying, well, Pastor Rob, does that mean that if a woman can be a deacon, that then she can also then eventually lead the church as an elder and teach? No. If you remember from our study two weeks ago, That particular role as an overseer or a pastor to shepherd God's flock has been designated by God for certain men called to lead in that way. And if you struggle with that or you don't quite understand that, the message is online if you want to listen to it. And there might even be a couple back in, in the lobby. So a deacon must not slander others but be faithful in all things. A deacon must be a person of character tested and found blameless. And then he gives a third one here. A deacon must manage your household well and serve with confidence. Deacons will be someone that you could look at their home life, the way that they manage their family, the way that they treat their wives and their kids, and you say, wow, it's honorable. They're honoring the Lord by their actions. Look at verses 12 and 13. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and of their households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high-standing And great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So he begins off with deacons must be husbands of only one wife. So Paul then shifts from women back to men here, and he begins to focus on the home life of the deacon. Now, if you remember, he spoke about the overseers that they needed to manage their household well. And again, I think this area is is about moral purity. Paul is focusing on a person who's in leadership position that they must be morally pure. Faithful is the idea. Now, he's not saying that to be a deacon, you must be married. Um, You can be single, but the idea is still the same. You can be married or single, but still, it's morally pure. So remember, the qualification was especially important there in Ephesus, Ephesus, you had the goddess Diana. It was temple worship, and they had temple prostitutes. And so I think many of the men that served during that time, they may have come from that. And Paul is saying, that was then, that is not now. You may have participated then. You better not be participating in that now. You need to be faithful. The husband of one wife, that's the idea. And then he says, good managers of your household and of your children, I think that's stewardship. I, I think he's talking about that you, you're a good steward of the resources that God has given you. You're, you're faithful to care and provide for your family. You oversee their care. You're concerned for them. You're a hard and diligent worker. You're somebody who's focused, and, and you, you, you love them as Christ loved the church. That's the idea. You manage your household well, because if you can manage your household well, then that's a good indication that you can also manage the church well, the family of God. And he says, then manage your children Now, 1 Timothy 3, 4, talking about the pastor, says that the pastor should have his children under control with all dignity. And so I think that what he's saying is there's a similarity also here with the deacon. And I think there's a similarity between being a dad and and being involved in church leadership. You want to see those under your care come to know Christ, and your first priority is to live it out before them and and then to instruct them in the ways of Jesus and, and the same way in the church, as a dad, you want your kids to say, wow, my dad actually believes that, and he tells me about it, and he lives it. Same thing in the church. People look at your life and they say, wow, he actually believes it, and he's always talking about Jesus, and he's actually living it. Same thing. I think that's the idea that he has here. So Paul is saying that if you have children that are just so out of control, and you have no control, and you don't know how to manage your finances, and your relationship with your wife is strained, and... You don't fit that role as a deacon. No perfection again, I understand. Had three kids, still a dad. They're all older, but boy, you never stop being a father. And it's part of the, part of the Christian life. But what Paul does, then, and then he begins to, to shift here, because this idea about the family is a testing ground for the, the qualities of both a pastor and a deacon. And then he says this, he says, for those who have served well as deacon, they obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There's two rewards for those that that get to serve in this function. The first one, he says, they obtain for themselves a high standing. Basically what that means is they're set apart. They, They stand out from among the crowd that they'll be recognized in the church as somebody who's faithful That literally, you you could even say they're put on a pedestal. Now, we don't want to say this in pride because that sounds like prideful, but there's a difference in them. And so they'll be recognized and given the authority to serve that way. But there's a second way. The more you serve God and the more you see God do, it builds in you a great confidence in the faith, doesn't it? And when you start serving the Lord and you start discovering the gifts and you start seeing what God can do, all of a sudden, you're confident in Christ. And as a deacon, as, as somebody that would serve the Lord faithfully, particularly how God has made you in your gifts, suddenly there's a, you, you believe that God's going to do something. And as you, you work and, and flow in the way that God works, you see that God uses you and it builds that confidence of faith. I think that's what he means there. You know, in 1933, theologian Karl Barth, he, he, he wrote a letter to a discouraged colleague, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, I don't know if you've ever read any of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's writings, what happened then, when he, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was disgusted with his government and the church because they kind of turned away from standing against Nazis. And so he left Germany and he went to England and started serving as a pastor. So Barth says this, he said, What is this all about, going away to the quietness of pastoral work? At a moment when you are wanted in Germany, and you know well as I do the opposition in Berlin and the opposition in the church in Germany, As the whole stands inwardly on such weak feet, why aren't you there on the watch at every occasion, great and small, trying to save what there is to be saved? One simply cannot become weary now, still less go to England. What in the world do you want to do there? You must now leave all those intellectual flourishes and think only of one thing, that you are a German and that the house of your church, it's on fire and that you know enough to be able to help them, and you must return to your post by the next ship. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer listened, and he did return. And no sooner did he return than he was captured and he was thrown into prison. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he heard the boots of the Gestapo coming to take him away and to go ahead and execute him, he wrote on a piece of paper what kind of people the church was going to need When the last bomb dropped and the last bullet was fired. This is what he said. Listen closely. He said, what the church will need, what our century will need, are not people of genius, not brilliant tacticians or strategists, but simple, straightforward, honest men and women who serve. Guys, that's a deacon. Honest men and women who serve. Be faithful to what God is calling you to. Be faithful to serve the Lord. A deacon must manage his household well and serve with confidence. Must be a person of character, tested and found blameless. Must not be a slander, but faithful in all things. And there's a last and final one. A deacon must know how to conduct themselves in the church. Your conduct in the body of Christ, it matters. It matters to Christ, but it also matters to those around you. And you have an impact by your life. Look at verses fourteen through sixteen. It says, "I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write, delayed, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations." Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, Paul's writing here saying, I'm hoping to come to you soon. And we know that didn't happen. We know from 2 Timothy, Paul ended up in jail and he ended up dying in prison. But his heart, he's like, I really want to come and be with you. And what he wants Timothy to know is how one is to conduct themselves in the household of God. And the Greek word household is the Greek word oikios. Now, it can just mean house. so It could be, if you will, the building. But we know in the context, three different ways he, he uses that same word. And all three times he's talking about the family. He's talking about the church family. He's talking about you're part of the household. You're, you're part of the family of God. You're, you're children of God. And he said, I want you to know how you're to conduct yourself. And he says, the church, this is really interesting. He says, the church of the living God, the pillar of in support of truth. You understand that we don't serve a dead God. It's not some dead religion. We serve a living Lord. Our Lord is resurrected. He's at the right hand of the Father. He is alive and we proclaim him alive. And it's the pillar and the support of the truth. If the church goes, truth goes. And the reason that our, our culture and, and, our, and, and, and our nation is struggling is because much of the church has been quiet. We need to be the support and the pillar of the truth. We proclaim it boldly in love. Boldly in love. It's the true living God. Right now is not a time to stand on weak feet, as Barth said. We stand in strength, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul does, he begins to to proclaim the confession of the church. Look at verse sixteen. He says, "By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Who was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory." And basically, what he's doing there, he's he's presenting a hymn, and and it, it's a hymn with three ideas. With there the are three couplets, two, 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 and the first part of the three pairs are it describes how Christ was revealed. It says he was revealed in the flesh and vindicated in the spirit. And basically, it's the bookends of his life. Guys, the incarnation, he was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit is the resurrection. And so right there, he just hammers out, boom. Jesus is God in the flesh, amen. And then he rose again. He's alive, amen. And then the second couplet, the second couplet here. It's the witness of Christ. He's seen by angels and he's proclaimed among nations. So you have the supernatural and the natural. The supernatural seen by angels, the natural he shared in the nations. Now was he seen by angels? For sure. Jesus was known by the angels. He's always been God. But then he was proclaimed by them, wasn't he? I mean, he told Mary, he told Joseph, right? They proclaimed them to the angels, right? But, He's proclaimed among the nations. Why do we do a missions fair? Because we want to proclaim him among the nations. We preach the gospel in season out of season. Where? Everywhere. Among the nations. Everywhere. He is who we preach. And then the third couplet is the reception given to Christ. Was the believed on in the world and he was taken up in glory. He had two kinds of receptions, didn't he? He was believed on by some. And we know that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. We know that from John. But there are some that believed on his name. And if you know Christ, he was received by you, and he's continuing to be received in this world. But then they also say here he was taken up in glory. That's the ascension. He rose. He ascended to heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. And he makes intercession for you and me so that we can move out in power and strength. And so here's the point. Christ is the reason for the grand confession. He is the reason we are a church. He is the one that we proclaim. And he is the one that moves out in power. And so Paul would say the same thing he said to the, first, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians is what he would say to you and me. He would say, so whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do what? All for the glory of God. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Well, Father, we recognize that this is your word, and you call us, Lord, as your people to to stand up and to serve, to be bold and yet be full of love. And Lord, we can't do this under our own strength. We need the power of Christ, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you've given him to us. And we thank you, Lord, that we are the pillar and the truth. So, Father, help us as a church to, to be bold in these last days, to move forward in faith, and to trust you as we move. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I please have you stand?